Section 16 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 4 of the Progress of Chemistry under Paracelsus and his Disciples. Part 2. Paracelsus betook himself in the first place to Alsace, and sent for his faithful follower the bookseller Operinus, together with the whole of his chemical apparatus. In 1528 we find him at Colmar, where he recommenced his ambulating life of a theosophist, which he had led during his youth. His book upon syphilis, known at that time by the name of Morbus Gallicus, was dedicated at Colmar to the chief magistrate of Colmar, Hieronymus Bonerus. In 1531 he was at St. Gallen, in 1535 at Feftersbad, and in 1536 at Augsburg, where he dedicated his Chirurgia Magna to Mauhausen. At the request of John de Leipa, Marshal of Bohemia, he undertook a journey into Moravia, as that nobleman, having been informed that Paracelsus understood the method of curing the gout radically, was anxious to put himself under his care. Paracelsus lived for a long time at Croman and its environ. John de Leipa, instead of receiving any benefit from the medicines administered to him, became daily worse, and at last died. This was the fate also of the Lady of Zerotin, in whom the remedies of Paracelsus produced no fewer than twenty-four epileptic fits in one day. Paracelsus, instead of waiting the disgrace with which the death of this lady would have overwhelmed him, announced his intention of going to Vienna, that he might see how they would treat him in that capital. It is said that from Vienna he went into Hungary, but in 1538 we find him in Villach, where he dedicated his Chronica et Orgio Carinthiae to the states of Carinthia. His book, De Natura Rerum, had been dedicated to Winkelstein, and the dedication is dated also at Villach in the year 1537. In 1540 he was at Mindelheim, and in 1541 at Strasbourg, where he died in St. Stephen's Hospital in the 48th year of his age. To form an accurate idea of this most extraordinary man, we must attend to his habits and to the situation in which he was placed. He had acquired such a habit of moving about that he assures us himself he found it impossible for him to continue for any length of time in one place. He was always surrounded by a number of followers, whom neither his habits of intoxication nor the foolish and immoral conduct in which he was accustomed to indulge could induce to forsake him. The most celebrated of these was Operinus, a printer at Basel, on whom Paracelsus lavishes the most excessive praises in his book De Morbo Gallico. 
but Operinus loaded his master with obloquy, being provoked at him, because he had not made him acquainted with the secret of the philosopher's stone, as he had promised to do. We must therefore be cautious in believing the stories that he relates to the discredit of his master. We know the names of two others of his followers, Francis, who assures us that Paracelsus was devoted to the transmutation of metals, and George Vetter, who considered him as a magician, as was the opinion also of Operinus. Paracelsus himself speaks of Dr. Cornelius, whom he calls his secretary, and in honor of whom he wrote several of his libels. Other libels are dedicated to Drs. Peter, Andrew, and Ursinus, to the licentiate Pancrace, and to Mr. Raphael. On this occasion, he complains bitterly of the infidelity of his servants, who, he says, had succeeded in stealing from him several of his secrets, and had by this means been enabled to establish their reputation. He accuses equally the barbers and bathers that followed him, and is no less severe upon the physicians of every country through which he travelled. When we attempt to form an accurate conception of the medical and philosophical opinions of this singular man, we find ourselves beset with almost insurmountable difficulties. His statements are so much at variance with each other in his different pieces, and so much confusion reigns with respect to the order of publication, that we know not what to fix on as his last and maturest opinions. His style is execrable, filled with new words of his own coining, and of mysticisms either introduced to excite the admiration of the ignorant, or from the fanaticism and credulity of the writer, who was undoubtedly, to a considerable extent, the dupe of his own impostures. That he was in possession of the philosopher's stone, or of a medicine capable of prolonging life to an indefinite length, as he all along asserted, he could not himself believe. But he had boasted so long and so loudly of his wonderful cures, and of the efficacy of his medicines, that there can be no doubt that he ultimately placed implicit faith in them. The blunders of the transcribers whom he employed to copy his works may perhaps account for some of the contradictions which they contain. But how can we look for a regular system of opinions from a man who generally dictated his works when in a state of intoxication, and thus labored under an almost constant deprivation of reason. His obscurity was partly the effect of design, and no doubt was intended to exalt the notions entertained of his profundity. He uses common words in new significations, without giving any indication of the change which he introduced. Thus, anatomy, in the writings of Paracelsus, signifies not the dissection of dead animals to determine their structure, but it means the nature, force, and magical designation of a thing. And as, according to the Platonic and Kabbalistic theory, 
every earthly body is formed after the model of a heavenly body, Paracelsus calls anatomy the knowledge of that model, of that ideal, or of that paradigm after which all things are created. He terms the fundamental force of a thing a star, and defines alchemy the art of drawing out the stars of metals. The star is the source of all knowledge. When we eat, we introduce into our bodies the star, which is then modified and favors nutrition. It is probable that many of his obscure and unintelligible expressions are the fruit of ignorance. Thus, he uses the term Pagoyas instead of Paganus. He gives the name of Pagoye to the four entities or causes of diseases founded on the influence of the stars to the elementary qualities, to the occult qualities, and to the influence of spirits, because these had been already admitted by the pagans. But the fifth entity or cause of disease which has God immediately for its author is non-pagoya. The andimia of Paracelsus is our edema. Only he applies the name to every kind of dropsy. The Latin word tonitru we find is declined by Paracelsus. Thus he says lapis tonitrui. The well-known line of Ovid, tolere nodosam nesit medicina podagram, he travestied into Nesti Tartariam Roades Curare Podagram. Roads, he says, means medicines for horses, and if any person wishes a more elegant verse, he may make it for himself. He employs also a great number of words to which no meaning whatever can be attached, and to which, in all probability, he himself had affixed none. As is the case with all fanatics, he treated with contempt every kind of knowledge acquired by labor and application, and boasted that his wisdom was communicated to him directly by God Almighty. The theosophist who is worthy of partaking of the divine light has no occasion for adopting a positive religion, nor of subjecting himself to any kind of religious ceremony. The divine light within, which assimilates him to the deity, more than compensates for all these vulgar usages, and raises the illuminated votary far above the beggarly elements of external worship. Accordingly, Paracelsus has been accused of treating the public worship of the deity with contempt. Not satisfied with the plain sense of the book, he attempted to explain in a mystical manner the words and syllables of the Bible. He accused Luther of not going far enough. Luther, says he, is not worthy of untying the strings of my shoes. Should I undertake a reformation, I would begin by sending the Pope and the reformers themselves to school. God, says Paracelsus, is the first and most excellent of writers. The Holy Scripture conducts us to all truth and teaches us all things. But medicine, philosophy, and astronomy are among the number of things. Therefore, when we want to know what magical medicine is, 
we must consult the apocalypse. The Bible, with its paraphrases, is the key to the theory of diseases. It puts it in our power to understand St. John, who, like Daniel, Ezekiel, Moses, etc., was a magician, a Kabbalist, a diviner. The first duty of a physician is to study the Kabbalah, without which he must every moment commit a thousand blunders. Learn, says he, the Kabbalistic art, which includes under it all the others. Man invents nothing, the devil invents nothing. It is God alone who unveils to us the light of nature. God honored at first with his illumination the blind pagans, Apollo, Esculapius, Macaon, Podalirius, and Hippocrates, and imparted to them the genius of medicine. Their successors were the sophists. One would suppose from this passage that Paracelsus had read and studied Hippocrates, and that he held him in high estimation. But the commentaries which he has left on some of the aphorisms show evidently that he did not even understand the Greek physician. The compassion of God, says he, is the only foundation of medical science, and not a knowledge of the great masters or of the writings which they have left in Greek and Latin. God often acts in dreams by the light of nature, and points out to man the manner of curing diseases. This knowledge renders all those objects visible which would otherwise escape the sight. And when faith is joined with it, nothing is then impossible to the theosophist, who may transport the ocean to the top of Mount Etna and Olympus into the Red Sea. Paracelsus predicts that by the year 1590, Christian theosophy would be generally spread over the world, and that the Galenical schools would be almost or entirely overthrown. We find in Paracelsus some traces of the opinions of the Gnostics and Arians, who considered Christ as the first emanation of the deity. He calls the first man Parens Homitus, and makes all spirits emanate from him. He is the Limbus Minor, or the last creature into whom enters the great Limbus, or the seed of all the creatures, the infinite being. All the sciences and all the arts of man are derived from this great Limbus, and he who can sink himself in the little Nimbus, that is to say, in Adam, and who can communicate by faith with Jesus Christ, may invoke all spirits. Those who owe their science to this limbus are the best informed. Those who derive it from the stars occupy the last rank, and those who owe it to the light of nature are intermediate between the preceding. Jesus Christ, in his capacity of limbus minor and first man, being always an emanation of the divinity and consequently a subordinate personage. These ideas explain to us why Paracelsus passed for an Arian and was supposed not to believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. He was of opinion that the faithful performed miracles 
and operated magical cures by their simple confidence in God the Father, and not by their faith in Christ. But he adds, however, that we ought to pray to Jesus in order to obtain his intercession. From the preceding attempt to explain the opinions of Paracelsus, it will be evident to the reader that he was both a fanatic and impostor, and that his theory, if such a name can be given to the reveries of a drunkard, consisted in uniting medicine with the doctrines of the Kabbalah. A few more observations will be necessary to develop his dogmas still further. Everybody, in his opinion, and man in particular, is double, consisting of a material and spiritual substance. The spiritual, which may be called the sideric, results from the celestial influences, and we may trace after it a figure capable of producing all kinds of magical effects. When we can act upon the body itself, we act at the same time upon the spiritual form by characters and conjurations. Yet, in another passage, he blames all magical ceremonies and ascribes them to want of faith. The celestial intelligences impress upon material bodies certain signs which manifest their influence. The perfection of art consists in understanding the meaning of these signs and in determining from them the nature, qualities, and essence of a body. Adam, the first man, had a perfect knowledge of the Kabbalah. He could interpret the signatures of all things. It was this which enabled him to assign to the animals names which suited them best. A man who renounces all sensuality and is blindly obedient to the will of God is capable of taking a share in the actions which celestial intelligences perform and consequently is possessed of the philosopher's stone. Never does he want anything. All creatures in earth and in heaven are obedient to him. He can cure all diseases and prolong his life as long as he pleases. Because he possesses the tincture which Adam and the patriarchs before the flood employed to prolong the term of their existence. Footnote Afkidoxorum Lib. 8, Opera Paracelsi, 2.29. In this book he gives the method of preparing the elixir of life. It seems to have been nothing else than a solution of common salt in water, for the quintessence of gold with which this solution was to be mixed was doubtless an imaginary substance. End of footnote. Belzebub, the chief of the demons, is also subject to the power of magic. And who can blame the theosophist for believing in the devil? He ought, however, to take care to prevent this malignant spirit from commanding him. Paracelsus was often wont to say, If God does not aid me, the devil will help me. Pantheism was one of the principal dogmas of the Kabbalah and Paracelsus adopts it in all its grossness. He affirms perpetually that everything is animated in the universe, that everything which exists eats, drinks, and voids excrements, 
Even minerals and liquids take food and void the digested remains of their nourishment. This opinion leads necessarily to the admission of a great number of spiritual substances intermediate between material and immaterial in every part of the sublunary world, in water, air, earth, and fire, who, as well as men, eat, drink, converse, beget children, but which approach pure spirits in this that they are more transparent and infinitely more agile than all other animal bodies. Man possesses a soul of which these pure spirits are destitute. Hence it happens that these spiritual substances are at once body and spirit without a soul. When they die, for like the human race they are subject to death, no soul remains. Like us, they are exposed to diseases. Their names vary according to the places that they occupy. When they inhabit the air, they are called sylphs. When the water, nymphs. When the earth, pygmies. When the fire, salamanders. The inhabitants of the waters are also called undine and those of the fire, vulcani. The sylphs approach nearest to our nature as they live in the air like us. The sylphs, nymphs, and pygmies sometimes obtain permission from God to make themselves visible, to converse with men, to indulge in carnal pleasures, and to produce children. But the salamanders have no relation to men. These spiritual beings are acquainted with the future and capable of revealing it to men. They appear under the form of ignis fatui, we have also the history of the fairies and the giants, and are told how these spiritual beings are the guardians of concealed treasures, and how these sylphs, nymphs, pygmies, and salamanders may be charmed and their treasures taken from them. This division of man into body and spirit, and of the things of nature into visible and invisible, has in all ages of the world been adopted by fanatics, because it enabled them to explain the history of ghosts and a thousand similar prejudices. Hence the distinction between soul and spirit which is so very ancient, and hence the three following harmonies to which the successors of Paracelsus paid a particular attention. Soul, spirit, body. Mercury, sulfur, salt, water, air, earth. The will and the imagination of man acts principally by means of the spirit. Hence the reason of the efficacy of sorcery and magic. The navy materni are the impressions of these vice-men, and Paracelsus calls them cocomica signa. The sideric body of man draws to him by imagination all that surrounds him, and particularly the stars, on which it acts like a magnet. In this manner, women with child, and during the regular period of monthly evacuation, having a diseased imagination, are not only capable of poisoning a mirror by their breath, but of injuring the infants in their wombs and even also of poisoning the moon.
but it seems needless to continue this disagreeable detail of the absurd and ridiculous opinions which Paracelsus has consigned to us in his different tracts. The physiology of Paracelsus, if such a name can be applied to his reveries, is nothing else than an application of the laws of the Kabbalah to the explanation of the functions of the body. There exists, he assures us, an intimate connection between the sun and the heart, the moon and the brain, Jupiter and the liver, Saturn and the spleen, Mercury and the lungs, Mars and the bile, Venus and the kidneys. In another part of his works, he informs us that the sun acts on the umbilicus and the middle parts of the abdomen, the moon on the spine, Mercury on the bowels, Venus on the organs of generation, Mars on the face, Jupiter on the head, and Saturn on the extremities. The pulse is nothing else than the measure of the temperature of the body, according to the space of the six places which are in relation to the planets. Two pulses under the sole of the feet belong to Saturn and Jupiter, two at the elbow to Mars and Venus, two in the temples to the Moon and Mercury. The pulse of the Sun is found under the heart. The macrocosm has also seven pulses which are the revolutions of the seven planets, and the irregularity or intermittence of these pulses is represented by the eclipses. The Moon and Saturn are charged in the macrocosm with thickening the water, which causes it to congeal. In like manner, the Moon of the microcosm, that is to say, the brain, coagulates the blood. Hence, melancholy persons, whom Paracelsus calls lunatics, have a thick blood. We ought not to say of a man that he has such and such a complexion, but that it is Mars, Venus, etc., so that a physician ought to know the planets of the microcosm, the Arctic and Antarctic pole, the meridian, the zodiac, the east and the west, before trying to explain the functions or cure the diseases. This knowledge is acquired by a continual comparison of the macrocosm with the microcosm. What must have been the state of medicine at the time when Paracelsus wrote, when the propagator of such opinions could be reckoned one of the greatest of its reformers? End of section 16. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith.